Welcome back to season four of the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast. I'm Ashley Miltite. On this season, we're taking a look at the future. We're looking at how the things you do every day will be different 10, 20, 50 years from now. To answer these questions, we're going to the places where the future is already happening. Because the future is already happening somewhere. It's just a matter of knowing where to find it. Today's episode, The Plastic of the Future. So I've got my mason jar, got my water bottle, and my metal straw. I'm all set. When we set out to explore the future of plastics, we wanted to really evaluate how our lives are impacted by the plastic of today. So our producer Jess took on a challenge. Would it be possible to live a plastic-free day? Cool. Plastic-free day? Gonna bike to work. Good way to avoid plastic, all right. Putting on my helmet. Uh, you know what? Actually, now that I think about it, this helmet is made entirely of plastic and some styrofoam, but mostly plastic. Um, the lock, some plastic right here. The brakes are certainly made of plastic. The grips, even the pedals, right? That's totally made of plastic. Um, great. Going to... Gonna walk to work instead. When plastic was invented, it held the promise of alchemy. Here was a new material, strings of carbon chains, that when reconfigured and linked up, could be turned into something tangible and valuable. A spoon? That could be plastic. A car? Pieces of that could be plastic too. A heart valve that could save your life? Anything and everything had the potential to be made of plastic. Plastic is one of the most affordable, versatile, and indestructible materials in the world. But the very properties that make plastic perfect for so much have also made it problematic. Most of that plastic is still here, and we have to confront it. Almost all of today's plastic will still be around tomorrow, next week, even 50 years from now. But in the future, Jess might be able to escape our plastic world as we know it. Right now, plastic is in the process of transforming itself again, bringing us that same alchemy with less environmental impact. On today's episode, we're going to look at a future where plastics will still be durable, flexible, and allow us to create anything we can imagine but will be made of different things, things like cornstarch, plant material, even algae. This bioplastic will change the way we package our food, how we design our clothes, and most importantly, how we dispose of plastic. To see bioplastic in action, we're heading across the pond to Southampton, England, and into the future. But first, to appreciate the plastic of the future, we have to understand what's happening with plastics today. Everyone's out and about. Seems like everyone's walking to work today. You know, I don't even think about how much of the world is made of plastic. I mean, like, the signs for the shops that I'm walking past, that's made of plastic. Just passed by this dude. He's literally holding a plastic bag and a coffee cup. So a plastic lid. I'm sure something in the cup is lined with plastic. Plastic was first invented in the early 20th century. 
but plastics as we now know them wouldn't become a household staple until much later. Vincent Andrews is a chemicals equity analyst for North America at Morgan Stanley. Plastics have been around since The Graduate, right? The Graduate, the 1967 classic starring Anne Bancroft and a young Dustin Hoffman. The scene Vincent is describing takes place at a party where Hoffman is approached by a man with a one-word career suggestion. Plastics. There's a great future in plastics. Back then, it was a cutting-edge product. It was a specialty chemical. Stuff was patented, and it was expensive. And now it's obviously all been uh, innovated massively since then uh, and has grown exponentially. By the 1960s, plastics had been around for a while, but they were still novel enough to capture people's imaginations. Today, though, they're commonplace. Plastics has grown into a multi-billion dollar industry. And that's because so many other industries rely on plastic. When manufacturers set out to make a new product, they have to decide which raw material might be the best for the job. You have a problem and you need somebody to to come in with a solution and you need the solution to have performance characteristics and economic characteristics. And somewhere between where those those two lines intersect is the choice that gets made. So people don't necessarily go out and seek plastics or anything else for that matter. They're seeking the end result. That intersection between performance and economics typically leads to plastic. We've come a long way since those early days of plastic. A lot of the things we think of as natural or real are really just plastic hiding in plain sight. When you leave the house or when you go on your way to work or whatever, look around and think about what, look at everything you look at. What do you think the material is? And you're going to be really surprised that more often than not, you're going to say plastic. I'm looking at a display rack of shoes and while they're beautiful colors and kind of embroidered with flowers, like there are no way these $5 shoes are made of genuine leather. It's plastic. It's totally plastic. This sign right here, the guy with earbuds, totally made of plastic. Like, oh, a water bottle. The recycling bins, the things that you're supposed to actually put your recyclables in, is made of plastic. We can't really talk about the future of plastic without talking about recycling. When you're done with your water bottle, you throw it in one of those blue or green bins. Eventually, it gets hauled away and reincarnated as a pair of spandex yoga pants. Plastics problem solved, right? But in 2019, recycling is a little more complicated than that. Recycling can help us reimagine what the plastic of the future might be. Once you put your plastic bottle in the recycling bin, um, it's going to go to what we refer to as a MRF. That is an acronym for Material Recovery Facility. This is Cole Rosengren, senior editor of Waste Dive, a magazine that covers the garbage and recycling industries. No matter what you're recycling, Cole knows that every plastic item gets the same initial treatment. Once that bottle makes its way to the MRF, it gets sorted into categories. If you flip any piece of plastic upside down, you'll see a little triangle enclosing a number between one and seven. Numbers one and two, which tend to be rigid plastics like water bottles and laundry detergent containers, they're the most valuable and have established recycling markets. They're easy to wash, sort and melt down into little plastic pellets that manufacturers can buy and use to make something new, like a carpet, a pair of sunglasses or even a park bench. But for categories three through seven... It's considered lower value just because the amount of time, you know, it takes to sort them and clean them and wash them down, at a certain point, you're just competing really with the price of virgin plastic. 
if it's just cheaper to make this stuff from scratch, they probably will. And then there's the time it takes to transport your plastics to the recycling facility. What do you do with that empty water bottle? You probably throw it in a bag with other plastics and leave it on the curb, where it sits until a truck picks it up. Now think about all those trucks stopping every few feet, weaving through cities, pulling into far-flung recycling centres to unload their haul, just to do it all over again. It's a slow, inefficient process. But there's a company that's trying to make the recycling process smoother and cheaper for everyone involved. My name is David Rachelson. I'm the Vice President of Sustainability at Rubicon Global. We're a technology company in the waste and recycling industry with a mission to end waste. Rubicon Global connects plastic producers with consumers and haulers. They've got a bird's eye view of recycling and can identify and fix problems at each point in the process. They know that with so many different players in the game, there are many opportunities for things to go wrong, for that bottle to end up in landfills rather than in the right recycling facility. Vincent thinks about this chain from an economic standpoint. One of the things we're starting to see is that the plastics companies get together with the waste collection companies and get together with the actual recycling companies to figure out how do we take the inefficiency in, out, of the, out of this process, reduce the amount of waste that's, that's created in this process, which will improve the overall economics of the process. This is Rubicon's ultimate goal, to help each player make or save money by recycling. They connect plastic manufacturers with businesses that buy plastic products with recycling trucks that will take their plastic to the most cost-effective facility. They know that recycling isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. When a manufacturer approaches Rubicon, the recycling solution might start with redesigning their product. For cities, their Rubicon Global app helps recycling trucks plan efficient pickup routes with fewer stops. For a small business that only produces one or two bags of recycling a day, recycling isn't just a minor expense. But Rubicon thought if you could take those one or two bags from many smaller businesses and put them together as one haul, small businesses might be able to divert those bags from the landfill at a reasonable cost. And so we can aggregate the volume, and that ultimately means that we can get value for those plastics and save money by sending less to the landfill. Through recycling education, consulting and communication, Rubicon is setting an example for what the shining future of plastics could look like. While it might seem like a no-brainer for other companies to adopt Rubicon's strategies, at this point, most of the players in the plastics world can't. Two years ago, China issued a government policy called National Sword. While China might not seem to have any bearing on recycling in the US or elsewhere, it does. Because up until National Sword, many Western countries didn't actually recycle much of their plastic. Instead, they sold most of their recyclables to China. It was a very kind of symbiotic relationship. We send them scrap to make new stuff, and they send it back to us as new products. That's coal again. And so when it came out in early 2017, in the waste industry, everyone knew about it, was talking about it, but wasn't as concerned. The sense, you know, even as of like spring 2017 was well, we'll make imports a little slower, a little tougher, you know, permanent inspections will be a little tighter, but no big deal. Then July 2017 is when China notified the World Trade Organization that it would be banning imports of mixed plastics. And that meant Western countries were finally forced to deal with their own plastics. Since National Sword, recycling has become even more expensive. 
Many facilities are only willing to take those more valuable number one and two products Cole mentioned. Some cities have actually stopped recycling altogether and instead burn their recyclables. And this also changes people's perceptions about recycling. If you know your plastic bottle is going to end up in an incinerator, then why bother recycling at all? Given our limited options, we have to ask ourselves, is recycling enough? Mixed plastics are sort of the casualty we've seen in the past year or so. You know, some cities are now saying, look, there's no market. We're not going to take these anymore. But cities do have the power to change our recycling system, even in the wake of National Sword. Some local governments are illuminating the hidden environmental costs of plastics by taxing or banning single-use plastics like bags and straws. And as we move further into the future, companies like Rubicon and government legislation could pave the way for better recycling practices. But these initiatives are addressing the plastic we're already stuck with. The most effective plastic solution might not involve the plastics we've come to know. We're going to change time zones and head to Southampton, England, where a durable, malleable and sustainable material is starting to revolutionise the recycling process and the way we think about single-use plastics. We can make those materials effectively return to carbon dioxide and water at the end of their life with food waste. And therefore, they don't persist on our planet after we've used them. This is Paul Mines, the CEO of Biome Technologies, a company that manufactures a material that can do nearly everything plastics can, but without the environmental cost. That material of the future is called bioplastic. Well, a bioplastic is a plastic that is either derived from bio-based sources, that's plants, or is actually biodegradable at the end of its life as well. And bioplastics can be either bio-based, biodegradable, or both. If turning plants into plastic sounds like something out of a mad scientist's laboratory, it basically is. When you walk through Biome's facility, you might see researchers in white coats running intricate experiments, but then you might hear something that sounds like the beginnings of an avalanche. Take a closer look and you'll find something a lot less frightening. Potatoes. Imagine thousands of little potatoes rattling along a series of conveyor belts, getting washed, sorted, and finally inspected by hand. As a producer of bioplastics, Paul and his team had to think creatively about how they could deliver the same promise of plastics without relying on petroleum. So they started with potatoes. And rather than thinking big, they thought small, really small, microscopic. So this is similar to using um, the microorganisms that do the fermentation in beer to make the, the alcohol. But instead of making alcohol, we choose to make the monomers that we can then make polymers out of. Polymers are the building blocks of any type of plastic. And this is where the microorganisms come in. So typically, in the case of a sort of microorganism route, the feedstock is something like corn syrup or starch that starch is fed to microorganisms. Those potatoes are the starch that becomes food for the microorganisms. Those microorganisms grow and they excrete chemicals. We harvest those chemicals from the microorganisms and those chemicals are called monomers. They're the, they're the precursors of making polymers. We take the monomers, we transform them into polymers and at this point what you've got being transported around the country is a 
a white pellet of plastic. And that plastic pellet, a bioplastic pellet in this case, is then taken off to a whole raft of different manufacturing outlets. You've probably used bioplastics without even knowing it. More and more companies are shifting towards bioplastics as substitutes for everyday products like coffee cups and takeout containers. They function just like a traditional plastic, but when you get rid of them, they'll just degrade, and that eliminates one of recycling's biggest problems. While you know, recycling is the answer to many of our issues with plastic, if we can keep the material in the system, unfortunately, materials that end up at home and are heavily contaminated with food are very, very difficult to recycle. And, and those kind of materials, the pragmatic route to disposal is composting because they're next to impossible to be recycled because of contamination they've got on them. Take a plastic product like single-use coffee pods. You stick them in a machine, press a button, and within seconds, you've got a fresh cup of hot coffee. Because so much of the pod is made of plastic, you might be tempted to recycle it. But it's very difficult to separate the coffee grounds from the plastic pod from the aluminum cover. Paul knows what typically happens to the traditional pod. If you made that pod from a non-degradable plastic, it would be around for hundreds of years. But in the kind of case that it's made from bioplastics, it's gone within three months. As we start to see just how these bioplastics could help reverse years of environmental damage, you'd think there'd be an influx of biodegradable, plant-based spoons, cups and bottles stuffed into our trash cans. So why haven't bioplastics outpaced traditional plastics? The most significant challenge is price. You know, at the moment, bioplastics cost between two and three times the price of oil-based plastics. And that's not going to change overnight. So over the next 10 years, although that price will come down, I, I think you will only see bioplastics adopted in areas of products with higher margins or where the bioplastic functionality is really important. Products like cereal, health food, nuts, even coffee that are produced by mid-sized companies. Think about specialty foods like granola. There's the generic, big brown granola, and then there are the newer, niche market granolas. How is that new granola going to compete with its better-known, cheaper counterpart? For a newer company that's focused on growing their brand rather than maintaining low margins, committing to bioplastics might help establish them as an environmentally friendly alternative. But right now, bioplastic isn't the best solution for everyone involved in the plastics chain. For one thing, bioplastics have yet to do everything traditional plastics can do. They're a great replacement for single-use plastics, some durable plastics like spandex and nylon, and even certain car parts. But bioplastics for industrial items like airplanes and electronics have yet to be created. And the other barrier? The price of bioplastic is linked to the price of oil. As long as oil prices are low, bioplastics won't win out. Here's Vincent Andrews again. High oil prices could solve that fairly quickly, but high oil prices would come with other consequences that we may not want. As much as oil prices can influence how we make plastic, there's another factor that can push bioplastics into the future. People. Consumers' perceptions about plastic have changed dramatically. They want to be able to choose more bioplastics options. As this demand for a more sustainable plastic grows, bioplastic won't just be available to a select few – it will take the same route as traditional plastics once did. 
over the last 18 months, two years, I think the world has really woken up to the fact that we have a plastic waste problem. And so whereas it was just premium brands looking at this space, we've seen the mass consumer brands and sort of mid-market brands really start to take an interest in bioplastics now. It might take a while before every store stocks bioplastic water bottles or yoghurt packaged in bioplastic, but the work needed to get there is already happening. International policies are forcing us to evaluate our recycling habits. Companies like Rubicon are trying to create a more sustainable plastic future. And scientists like the ones at Biome are taking that recycling dream one step further, ushering us into a new type of plastic world. All of these efforts suggest the way to deal with plastic isn't to ban it. It's to create a market that will incentivize us to think about plastic in new, responsible and exciting ways. At the moment, I I think bioplastics are less than 1% of total plastics demand for consumer packaging. Uh, And I can see within a five-year timescale, bioplastics taking a... 10% share of that market within five years. I think in 100 years we'll we'll be using predominantly bio-derived materials. Um, I still think we will be using oil-based plastics for some applications, but more than half of the market will be supported by bio-based inputs. I mean, the history of the world suggests that there'll continue to be innovation and, you know, as as a new... Uh, sub-industry, um, you know, it may take, it just, it's going to take intellectual and financial capital to be thrown at it to sort of, you know, find those, find those tipping points in, um, you know, either the performance or the, or the cost of production. Thanks for listening to the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast. You can listen to previous episodes at morganstanley.com slash ideas. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Ashley Nantite. See you next time.